Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you into our hearts today. Lord, we ask that everything that is said here, Lord, that the things that are from you will stick and the things that aren't will pass away. We ask you to remove all hindrance from our hearts, from a hunger spark being started in us, um, in a love for you to be encouraged. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things I love about Platte Park Church is that it's not a place where you're going to get told what to think. Um, we're people who get together, together we love each other and we love Jesus together. But it's not, there's no thought police saying you have to think these things. We say we believe in what's said in the Apostles' Creed um, and we love Jesus together. But there's a lot of other little minor details that we can disagree on. Um, we won't be doing that today and we won't probably be doing that ever. But Paul here is going to tell us, he's telling the Philippian believers, not what to think, but what to think about, how to think. It's a good just introductory lesson. Um, anxiety comes often because we're thinking about the wrong things. We're growing um, toxic things in our, in our heart and in our mind instead of thinking upon the things that Paul is going to tell us to talk about. And I'm finishing up our series, so I'm going to give an overview of all these things together as well as that what is lovely. Uh, con- it, he was writing this letter to Philippi. Um, this is just that area of, you can see that there's this big valley there, and I'm going to skip a whole, whole lot of things um, and not get too far into that. But there's certain things that I want to tell you about what's happening here and why he's saying what he's saying. Um, if you remember the story of um, Paul planting the church in Philippi, it's, it's in like Acts 14 to 16 around that area. One thing you need to know is there were, usually Paul would start off a church in a synagogue. So there, it'd start off with this group of people who had this anticipation of a coming Messiah, and then they knew the Torah, and the, the, the Old Testament of the Bible. So there was some kind of baseline of knowledge about understanding Proverbs and Psalms and these kind of things. Philippi didn't have any of that. When he got there, there was just a group of women meeting at the um, river, meaning there weren't even ten guys, maybe no, no Jewish men at all in the entire place. So they didn't have this background. That's important for us to know, I think, when we talk about this. Two, um, Paul didn't get to spend a whole lot of time with them. Uh, he, got, he delivered this uh, soothsayer from a demon at the same time that the emperor Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And in Philippi, it, whatever happens in Rome happens in Philippi. And so these two things combined to when Paul did that, they were like, hey, he's a Jew as well. So they stripped he and Silas down, beat them, and kicked them out of the city. And I'm skipping some really, really fun details, but I don't have time. Um, so two things. There, there wasn't this baseline of Jewish thought um, in the church. They went straight from Gentile paganism right into Jesus. And there's some wonderful things about that, but there's also some things that they might have missed along the way. Two, they didn't get years and months and months of Paul's preaching and teaching. 
And so he just got to stay there for a little bit and, and had to, he got kicked out of town, basically. So this letter's being written. Paul's in house arrest in Rome. And then there's this man named Epaphroditus from Philippi. And they sent him to both give a gift of money to Paul while he's in house arrest. He can't work anymore. Interestingly enough, uh, the, the church in Philippi is the only church that supported Paul financially of all the churches that he went around and planted. So they sent Epaphroditus to bring money and just to bring um, news of how things are going in Philippi. And apparently there's a little bit of contention between some people. Um, there's a couple of women who aren't agreeing. And if you read the book of Philippians, you, you, you get the impression that there might be a little bit of pride rising up from time to time. So Paul, when he's writing these things, if you read the whole book, you'll see He's showing them what Jesus is like and how we can be like him. Um, so with that in mind, he t- says the, the verse that we just read. He's telling them what to think about. This is very entry-level Christianity. I think when Paul heard about these things, about how people were thinking and how people were disagreeing, he's like, oh, yeah, you don't have some of this baseline stuff that most churches do because they have you know, the Psalms, the Proverbs, all of the story of God um, that has preceded that. So he's starting to tell them, this is, these are the things to think about. One of the ca- countercultural things about follow, being a follower of Christ is we are called to look for the good, to look for the beauty in situations and in people. So lately I've been having this verse that we just read, that Tim just read us, in my head, and I'm trying to memorize that. Um, if you got the the notes, it's all listed on there as a checklist almost. So this is a checklist I'm trying to memorize in my head, and I'm trying to practice it, and I'm trying to take it seriously. And so when a thought comes into my head right now, I go through the list. Is this true? Is this noble? Is this pure? Is this right? Is this lovely? Is this excellent? Is this worthy of praise? And if I don't get a yes to all those answers, I try to start thinking about something else. Try to think think about something that is that is that way. Um, this happens a lot on my drive to, to work, and I, I, I always go up and down Broadway. And Broadway's an interesting place to practice this kind of thing, because it's mostly used car dealerships and pot stores. Um, so as I, as I walk down and, you know, and listen to the radio a lot of times, and um, so with the radio, it's either like news or sports or music. And so I'm asking myself this question all the time, and um, after a couple of weeks, I just disconnected my radio because it, it very, very seldom was it, uh, could I answer yes to all these questions. So I use this as an exercise. I'm just looking. Maybe it's a color on a sign that's beautiful. It's lovely. It's something that's true. It's right. Um, but it's, it's become this wonderful challenge for me, and I have noticed my focus on looking for the good in things. Um, so we, the thing is, um, I've noticed as well, is I'm attracted to things that are ugly. Um, I don't know if you're like this, but if I get on my news feed, I'm not looking for something that's good. The things that are interesting to me are like, no, what? what? That person said this, and that person did this, and I'm just appalled by these things. And, but those are the things I tend to gravitate towards. It's not, I'm not looking for good news. I'm looking for things that just get me fired up or something. Um, and I find this. It's, I think that's part of the fall is that we are, um, we're geared towards that. And I think the enemy jumps on that to have us thinking about things that are not this. Um, Paul is teaching us the opposite. I even see this in my son, Bo. He's a little, little Bo. He's one years old. And I watch him be attracted to that which is ugly. We took him to Hudson Gardens, this really pretty place. There's all these flowers everywhere and pumpkin patch. 
he finds this outlet in the ground and starts trying to put his finger in it. I mean, I, I, you don't even see it. Um, like, do you remember October 8th when it snowed? I had Bo, and Bo's used to being outside a lot. And so I wanted to take him somewhere that's inside that seems like outside. It's really big. Um, so I took him to Cabela's. I think it's like 60,000, 70,000 square feet, and there's like 300 taxidermied animals, and he can kind of touch anything in there because, except for the fishing part. Um, so I was just like, okay, I'm just going to put him in here and follow him around see where he goes. And it took about a minute before he disappears into this corner and comes out lugging this thing, and I look at it. It's a metal rat trap that he somehow fished out of the corner behind a bunch of stuff. I'm like, how in the world did you find that in the 60,000 square feet of this store? Uh, we're just drawn to that which is ugly sometimes. Um, I think that is part of the fall. And Paul is teaching us to do the opposite of looking for that. He's telling us that our thoughts are precious and they can be wasted on unworthy things or they can be placed on worthy things. Our culture trains us to look towards that which is ugly. The media, if you look for like good news on a media news feed, it's really, really hard to find because they've under, they understand that we're not all that interested in that. Um, we want to see the ugly thing, so they give it to us. I don't want that to become part of my own culture. I want to think about different things than other people do as a Christian. I want to be transformed by the things I think about and what I look at. I think of the thoughts sometimes in our head is the water that we're swimming in. And I want the water that I'm swimming in to be clear and crisp and pure and delicious. That's a choice I can make by choosing what I'm thinking about. I don't want to swim in this cesspool of just negativity and fault-finding and backbiting and just the sewer of ugliness and perversity that can very easily become what I'm swimming in if I let my thoughts do that. It's something we don't think about, but I can control what I'm thinking about. I can't control every thought that comes into my head, but I can run it through the list. Is this true? Is this noble? Is this pure? Is this right? Is this lovely? Is this excellent? Is this worthy of praise? And if it doesn't meet the criteria, then I can decide to think on something else. It's a positive thing. I think a lot of times we think about this as something negative. Oh, just don't think about that. Don't think about that. But it's, no, I want to think about these things. God gets bigger and more beautiful the more time I'm looking at him, staring at him and meditating on him. And the bigger he gets, the less my anxiety gets because I see the bigger picture and what's really important. And I realize that I'm surrounded by beauty and I may not know it. Okay, what will happen? Here's the question. What will happen if I start to think about these things? And I think I've narrowed it down to two things that I've noticed that will happen to me if I begin to, on purpose, think about things that are right and noble and pure, and true, and lovely, and right, and um, excellent, and worthy of praise. The first thing is I'll begin to look for and find the good in almost everything and everyone. It becomes just this exercise as if I'm with someone, even someone that might rub me the wrong way, is I begin asking of this person, what is true about this person? What is noble about this person? What is pure about this person? What's right what is lovely about this person or excellent and worthy of praise? That's a good way to be with people. All of a sudden, you, my thoughts about this person change, and I become this treasure hunt for the good in them. I was talking to Taylor Matzenbacher the other day. We were at dinner, and he said, I wish Christians were better at seeing the good or the special things about people and calling that out. Our world would be a different place if we were better at that, Right? And if you've ever heard the phrase, you know, if you speak to the negativity in someone, then that negativity will rise up. 
you speak to the Christ in someone, then the Christ will rise up. Whatever you speak to in someone, that's what's going to rise up in them. But I often find myself, because I'm a fallen human being, defining people by the things that annoy me about them. And that's something I can stop. You know, I can't help it from popping in my head at first, but I can ask, this isn't right. This may not even be true, and this is definitely not noble. So I'm not going to think about that about this person right now. It's a new way of thinking. If you've ever heard of this woman, uh, Dr. Caroline Leaf, she's a neuroscientist. She goes into all this about how you can retrain your brain, the neuroplasticity of your brain, to reprogram how you go about thinking about things. And instead of growing toxic tree thoughts in your mind, you uh, grow like life-giving. It's fascinating. I don't have time to get into it, but if you ever look her up, it's pretty, pretty neat. Okay, the second thing that will happen if I begin to think it this way is a hunger for the creator and the author of these wonderful things will grow inside of me. Have you guys ever listened to a song, seen a movie, read a book, heard a sermon, or seen a play where you're just touched somehow by it, right? And, um, and what happens with me is it's not enough just to be touched by that. All of a sudden, I want to know about the person who made that. Um, Liz and I, a few years ago, we went to see this play called In the Heights, We'd never heard anything about it, but we ended up at, uh, at, and saw it. And I was just, I was captured by this. I mean, I, the, the musicianship in it, the songwriting, the story, the talent, everything that went into that, I was just taken aback by it. So I immediately I got home, and I just started researching this guy, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote it and, and did it. He's like actually famous now for doing Hamilton. But I, had, I needed to know something about him. Um, same thing if you, you know, Justin Bieber is kind of this phenomenon that was this Canadian kid who started singing songs on the internet, but it really touched something in a lot of young people, and it wasn't enough for them just to listen to that. They had to know all about him. So everything that this guy says on Twitter or whatever, I mean, they hang on every word or every picture he puts up, and um, it's because they have to know him because they're touched by what he's done. Paul understands this dynamic, and he's saying, if you're thinking about what is true, what is noble, what is pure, what is right, what is lovely, what is excellent and worthy of praise, you're not going to be satisfied just thinking about that thing. It's going to bring you to having to know the author of these things. And what happens is Paul just is starting very, very simply. You start thinking about him, you start talking to him. You start talking to him, you start meditating on him, which becomes gazing on him and contemplating him, which results in knowing him and being transformed into his image. Now, I just use a whole lot of words that are popular in the, in the spiritual formation world. Paul's making it very, very, very simple. He's saying, think about him. Think about that which is lovely and true. All you have to do is think about him. The rest will kind of take care of itself. This will bring you into other kind of practices. But thinking about him is where it all starts. Um, it, it demystifies this whole thing about prayer. It's just start by thinking about him. Um, have you guys ever heard of a guy named Frank Laubach? He wrote a book called, uh, it's a funny name, title for a book because it's kind of the opposite of what you end up reading. But it's called Letters from a Modern Mystic. Um, it was a guy, he's, he was living in the Philippines, and these are just a bunch of letters that he wrote home. And he decided just to kind of, according to this, he says, I just want to think about God every minute of the day. And so he just starts very tangibly and practically keeping track. Did I think about him this minute? 
did I think about him this minute? I mean, really simple like that. And it, his, it reads sometimes kind of like a lot of our own journals read, oh, I didn't do it very well today. Oh, I really screwed up today. But some days he's better than others, and he gradually increases. And it's something so simple, all I want to do is think about him. And then he starts to tell the story about how his life is transformed by simply trying to think about God more often. It's a simple, simple, simple thing to do. Just think about it. Okay, I want to take you through seven people. I always like to take us through the Bible from the start to the finish uh, to illustrate what the things that we're talking about here. Paul's not the only person uh, who thinks about thinking about gazing upon him and being transformed into his image. It starts with Adam and Eve. You know, they were walking around the garden. They, could, uh, they somehow had spiritual senses that they could see God in some way. And there was no anxiety in their life. They lived in this wonderful bliss where they got to see him. They weren't worried about what they were wearing, what they looked like, what other people thought of them. That was their life. And we all know the story. They uh, sinned. They ended up getting kicked out of the garden. And the vision of God, the gazing upon him, went away. And as that went away, they, become, they became less and less like him. So much so that four chapters later, we're in Genesis 6, Noah's the only righteous man on the earth. When we stop gazing, when we stop seeing that who is lovely and true and noble and pure and right and lovely and excellent and worthy of praise, then suddenly we become less and less those things. Two, Moses. Moses gives us his great, great illustration of what we're talking about today, of being transformed as we gaze upon him. Uh, Moses had a special way of seeing God. Once the temple was established, Moses could go in there every day and was with God somehow face-to-face. I don't know what was happening in there, but he was gazing upon him. And then his, his own countenance would begin to radiate light. Uh, let's just read what it says in Exodus 34, 33, and 35. When Moses finished speaking to them, the Israelites, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Literally, beams came out of his face is what the word means. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. That was a, just a wonderful illustration for us. Paul uses it later on as well. But being in the presence of God, gazing upon him, he began to be like him. Uh, we see in Revelation that, that God is full of light. You know, Eventually, there's no need for for day or night in the, in the coming kingdom because he is all the light that is needed. Let's go on to David. David had more of a diverse life than anyone in this room can even imagine. <laughs> Starts off being this little shepherd boy ignored by his own family. Then all of a sudden he kills Goliath and he's super famous and they're writing songs about him. Then he becomes the singer of Saul to appease demons. And then Saul keeps trying to kill him. And then he says, you can have my daughter if you get 100... Uh, Philistine foreskins, and then he gives him 200. You, can you imagine what it takes to get 200 Philistine foreskins? I mean, these were not like just easy guys to <laughs> kill or anything like this. And then he becomes hunted like a dog for years, surrounded by a bunch of malcontents just running from the king, and then he becomes this wonderful, great warrior king. And we know all of his ups and downs. He, ha- he had quite a life. But when it came down to it, we read in Psalm 27.4, one thing I ask from the Lord. It came down to one thing. This only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, in my, of my life, 
to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Out of all these things that I've done in my life, I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord because it's been revealed to me a little, and I can never have enough of that. That was David. Then Jesus came. Even Jesus himself looked upon God. He said, I don't do anything of my own will. I do only what I see the Father doing. Even Jesus, we don't know how it all worked with the whole divinity and the humanity, but he had to look at his Father to become more and more like him. We all do. That's the way it worked. And then when he was lifted up on the cross, all who look to him are saved. It's a gaze. Okay, Paul. Paul, we, we've seen how he tells us how to think. Think about these things. And now, he, now in this letter, he's, he's, we're going to talk about 2 Corinthians. He's writing to the Corinthians. And whereas the, Philipp, the Philippians only got a couple weeks to a couple months with him, he lived in Corinth for a year and a half. So they got a lot more of his teaching because he could speak a little bit more clearly with them. And in 2 Corinthians 3.18, I think I use this scripture almost every time I talk. But we all, with unveiled faces, he just, he's referring back to, he just told the story of Moses that we just talked about. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Love beholding as in a mirror, beholding as in a dark glass um, that can be translated. It's not about seeing him super, super clearly. Like how we're going to prayer, we think about him, and we... we understand everything perfectly. It's very dark. It's very dim on this side. But even that transforms us into his image. We become what we behold. And this is a true thing about our life. That thing that we think about all the time, the thing that we look at becomes the thing that we find beautiful. And then we, be, we get transformed into that one way or another. As we look upon that which is he who is true, he who is noble, he who is pure, he who is right, he who is lovely, he who is excellent, he who is worthy of praise, we become transformed into those things as we look more and more like him. I have a kind of funny illustration of how this looks. Have you ever met anyone who is in love with their dog? Um, and that is the thing that they think about all the time when they wake up and when they go to bed in the mor- at, at night. Um, it's, it becomes, this dog becomes, they look at it so much and they think about it so much that that becomes what's beautiful to them. And then they start looking like that, that dog. I mean, look at that. You think that guy ever thinks about that dog? <laughs> the dog becomes the thing that is beautiful and they begin to unconsciously start to, start to make themselves look like these, these animals. Um, <laughs> isn't that funny? <laughs> see, that is, that's an actual principle that we get to see there, but we get to do it with the most beautiful thing we could ever imagine, which is our God. In Jesus Christ, we can look at him, the most beautiful thing, and even the parts that we don't understand and we may not see as beautiful, we know that they are. That is a possibility for our life to begin to look more and more like him. Okay, it's not just Paul. John goes on, and he talks about in uh, 1 John 3, 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. 
but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Do you see the same principle? Uh, you can change the word for to because. It's the same word. Is that right, David Goodman? Right? For, because. Um, it's, it's causal. When we see him, the more we see him for who he is, the more we become like him. That's a wonderful thing. The closer we, the more time we spend with him, the more we gaze upon him, the more we use our scriptures to know what he's like, then the more we'll start to look like him. And when we see him clearly for who he is, we become like him instantly. That's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to look forward to. Okay, our, our seventh one, um, the writer of Hebrews. Big theological debates on who wrote Hebrews. Some people think it was this guy, that guy. It's kind of a, one of those deals. Um, but he understands this concept as well. Um, in Hebrews 12, <laughs> and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the pioneer or the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, is the next thing it says, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider him. Fix our eyes upon him. Our goal is to be one with him. We just sang about this. So one day we will be one. We get transformed closer and closer and closer to his image, and it ends up there. But we do this by fixing our eyes upon him, by considering him. Paul's starting with the Philippians, and he's saying, just think about it. Think about these things, and you'll end up thinking about him. The beauty of God is a treasure that we can hunt if we so choose to do it. Uh, Proverbs 25, 2, this is a wonderful little verse. It says, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. The beauty of God is hidden. It's not just right out in front of us all the time. It's something that we search out ourselves and look to find. When we start thinking about asking the question, what is right about this? What is true about this? What is noble about this? What is um, lovely about this? What is excellent? What is worthy of praise? Then we, that's how we start to uh, go on this treasure hunt. We use our scriptures to go along with it. It's the glory of a God to hide it, and it's the glory of a king to search it out. Okay, this is the frustrating part of preaching right now, is that right now is the point where I just want to tell you how beautiful he is, and I want that to impact you and transform you. But the frustrating thing is, God didn't, doesn't let us do that. We can't hear it from someone else or read a book about it or see a movie about it. It has to be gotten one-on-one -on -one with him because he loves each one of us individually so much that he arranged it that way. Preachers, when we're up here, where Tim and Susie or I are up here, we're waiters. We can tell you what's on the menu tonight, uh, but it's up to each one of us to order it, to receive it, to chew it, and to swallow it and so that, for that to be part of our lives. So as much as I want to just explain the beauty of God to you from start to finish, it's something, it's an invitation where you take your scriptures um, it, the scriptures, this is a wonderful uh, treasure map. It's not the only way, but it is a super, super, super helpful way for us to see the beauty of God and to search it out. And what happens in that is we encounter him. And in the encounter, just like Moses, we're transformed bit by bit. Don't expect it to come really quickly like you'll know one, way, one day from the next. But over time, 
we begin to see more and more of his beauty and we're transformed more and more into his image. He longs for that for us. I know someone right now who's memorizing uh, Revelation 4. Um, It's the throne room of God, just so she can keep this in her mind, keep her gaze upon him. And it's a good way to start. Think about that which is lovely, what we're talking about this week. One thing David asked for, to see the beauty of the Lord all the days of his life. He narrowed it down to that. It's how we're transformed. It's the wonderful treasure hunt that we get in our 70, 80, 90 years here on earth. What a privilege and what an adventure it is to do it. Let's pray. Lord, let us fix our eyes upon you and think upon that which is true, noble, pure, right, lovely, excellent, and worthy of praise. When we swim in these wonderful waters, we watch your as our worries float down the current and we continue to fix our eyes upon you, the true one, the noble one, the pure one, the right one, the lovely one, the excellent one, and the one worthy of all of our praise.